Hello, barbarians. It is me, Emmett, your nuclear barbarian, with a, another installment of Nuclear Barbarians Podcast. Uh, today is an exciting one. I have a guest, Gavin Mendel Gleason from the Republic of Ireland here to talk to us about what is going on with the energy crisis, nuclear, etc. in Ireland. Gavin, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me on, Emmett. I should clarify, I'm originally from the United States, but I've been living in Ireland for the last uh, 20 uh, or so years. So No way. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Alaska originally. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> that is That was the most surprising answer I could have gotten. I think only Hawaii would have been... <laughs> <laughs> stranger. Stranger, yeah, for sure. Mm. So I'd like for the listeners to get to know you a little bit before we start getting into the weeds here. So now that we know you're originally from Alaska, why don't you fill in a little backstory there? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, actually, I, I moved to Ireland for a job uh, in databases and just sort of the tail end of the Celtic Tiger and liked it a lot and so stuck. And then I actually, after I came to Ireland, I started getting involved in socialist politics so then I've been, I was very active in the socialist political scene in Ireland. And now I'm actually the international secretary for the Workers' Party of Ireland. And I, I consider it my political home now. And I've been in, my background is in mm -hmm. originally. So I, I, I went to university for physics and then went to Carnegie Mellon for a graduate degree in physics. I dropped out of it and, and ended up doing a startup instead. But I, I've always had a love of, of physics. And in fact, when I was working in the physics department at the University of New Mexico as a researcher, I was in the radioactive sources room. And I think that's, they, they put me in there with radioactive sources in a computer. And I was like, well, why are you putting me in with the radioactive sources? <laughs> that doesn't seem fair. And then one of the other graduate students who worked in there gave me a Geiger counter. So don't worry about it. Just go and look at it. And so I started like going around the place with the, a Geiger counter. And, and sure enough, the sources were a non-entity, but actually it turned out some of the cinder block was fairly radioactive. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then I started, you know, it started changing my, my perception about nuclear power and nuclear energy in general. And I started thinking about radiation differently because once you realize that, you know, it's around us all the time, we have radiation hitting us all the time, you start, you have to compare, you know, what, how much radiation is coming from this? Is it a dangerous level of radiation? And that kind of thing started seeping into my consciousness. And that started mm -hmm. driving an interest in, in nuclear power early. Yeah. I mean, especially if you live in, if you're living in Albuquerque, right? So I lived in Santa Fe for a few years and Albuquerque's at, I think, around 6,000 feet and Santa Fe is at about uh, 7,200, right? So you're just living in radiation all the time when you're at That's that altitude, right. right? Like way more than where I grew up in Illinois, you know, and people forget that, you know, you take an international flight and you're getting irradiated, you know, it is, yeah, it's a radioactive world, you know, that's just, it's, there's nothing special about radioactivity. So that's how you came to find like energy, nuclear, et cetera. It just as a quick question, the Workers' Party, so where do they fit in in the left in Ireland? Because for 
I think my listenership is mostly American. So obviously the divides don't work quite the same as they do here. Like this would, our national politics would not be a good rule of thumb for understanding how the Workers' Party fits in. That's right. Yeah. So the Workers' Party, uh, they are a Republican party. It comes out of the IRA. It was split in 1969, 1970. There was a split and one side became the official IRA, which then went on to form the Workers' Party. And the other side went on to form the Provisional IRA and Sinn Féin. So the, we were originally called official, we were called Sinn Féin and then official Sinn Féin and then changed the name to Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party in 78 and then became the Workers' Party in 1982. So it comes out of that tradition. It was a Marxist-influenced split. So the the official Republican wing, which can retain the majority of the leadership, at least, of the IRA Army Council and the Central Committee of Sinn Féin, they, were, they had been influenced by Marxism in the 1960s, especially going into the late 1960s, early 1970s. And mm-hmm. that Marxist influence then is what kind of pushed them towards a, a more um, workerist approach, I suppose, to the struggle for independence and for an Irish Republic. Yeah, there's a real north-south divide there too between the real IRA and the provisional IRA, the real IRA having the workerist class unity perspective and the provisional IRA, I think emerged from a far more sectarian experience in the counties and that was a divide ever since and still yeah. is. The the official IRA though, rather than sorry, the real. Sorry, sorry. real is a, a another split again. Right, I always forget right, that that's, uh, yeah. that's yet another permutation. That's um, right. There's there's <laughs> a lot of splits. If you look at the politics of Irish, like almost all of the parties come out of the IRA at some point. Mm-hmm. So you have both Fine Gael uh, and Fianna Fáil. Fáil that are they're both IRA parties essentially from the original War for Independence and then Civil War. Right, exactly. And just to clarify for American listeners, uh, Republican in this context is going to mean for a free United Republic of Ireland that is a sovereign state, right? Republican in a sense that is perhaps more traditional than what we experience in our own national politics with our Republican Party today. So thank you. That was clarifying. Now, I did a little bit of research. I did not know that the Shannon hydroelectric scheme in the 20s, which became a big dam, was at the time, until the Hoover Dam was created, one of the largest hydro dams the world had seen, which is a fantastic feat for a largely, still largely agrarian state. That's impressive. The Irish grid gets built, I think, as part of a national project in the 30s and 40s. And then it goes the way of the UK grid during the 90s, I believe, or, or at least early 2000s. What's what's going on with the grid, man? <laughs> tell, tell me what's happening. <laughs> well, I mean, so like that kind of national project, uh, Ardna Krishna and the original attempt to build a national grid, they, they were getting a huge percentage. I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think it's like almost all of the power that was supplied was coming from hydropower during that that time period, the early uh, early period of Ardna Krishna. And that's, that project was part of a, a sort of a long phase of Fianna Fáil. So Fianna Fáil was the uh, largest and, and most popular political party in Ireland for most of the period of independence. So even prior to, during the free state period up to the point when it became a republic and afterwards, and it's really dominated Irish politics 
until fairly recently. And it's really in the 2000s that it sort of disintegrates. And during that early period, Fianna Fáil would be a conservative Christian Democratic Party, but with an idea towards national sovereignty, self-sufficiency, some kinds of uh, ideas of economic rectitude, sort of a Catholic ethos in some sense. And so sort of like that, a dis- what a distributist mindset on how it ought to work. Yeah, yeah so that would they would have had distributivist and and corporatist influence. So in fact like the the Senate in in Ireland is still a corporatist body and those kinds of influences of class collaboration were considered to re- really be beneficial and you know capitalism was something that fit into a framework of a Catholic ethos. And that that meant that they did do significant development projects, industrial development projects, and projects for import substitution. They had a very large housing development project. So my house was built in, in that period of the 1940s. So that, that kind of influence is, is really widespread. And then you have this period going into the 1960s of that sort of disintegrating. Partly that's because Fianna Fáil was so popular, they, you know, that corruption became more of an issue and there was more to be corrupt about. There was more money floating around. <laughs> uh, if you're su- sufficiently poor, you can't be all that corrupt, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, that, so I, I, and I think, you know, it really with the turn towards foreign direct investment, an idea of trying to be a more open economy uh, really came about and they decided it was it was essentially a political decision to to turn away from really a national development culture to something that was more of an open an open economy mm-hmm. and that that led Fianna Fáil to the to, through the 1980s where they became extremely corrupt just lo- almost ludicrously corrupt and then all the way to the 2000s and and uh, Bertie Ahern being sort of the last Brian Cowan after him but they they managed to hold on to it and then their party is sort of disintegrated there's not really a point to them left mm-hmm. so now now we have Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael they're both essentially liberal parties they don't really have an ethos anymore catholic or otherwise they're just sort of yeah neoliberal parties i i would i would say right exactly i mean there's been some interesting stuff in the background of sort of the the marty mcginnis playbook bore fruit over time for the Sinn fein as well so while that's happening the i guess the term we would uh call it the irish grid became neoliberalized right in terms of it has the regional transmission organization auction house structure, right? It got broken up. And that of course means, and this might've been true beforehand, even though it was, or was becoming true as Ireland likely became more power hungry and needed more terawatts, heavily reliant on Ellen. And I mean, the benefits to that in an RTO setup are pretty obvious, especially if you have, I follow a little bot on Twitter that just like sends me updates about like how renewables are performing in Ireland. (laughs) And I'm like, oh man, they're probably using a lot of gas right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And my question is, how is that grid coming into contact with the looming energy crisis? What position is Ireland in? What type of conversations are people having about it? Are there any regrets or anything like that about some of the decisions that have been made? So, I mean, it is coming into uh, focus actually at the moment. So 
there was recently a, a poll about about interest in nuclear, and it's gone up a, a lot since the last time I looked. Um, and they there was a breakdown recently by by party as well, and they, they were quite su- surprising numbers in there. Of course, the, the far left would be very antagonistic to nuclear, whereas the as you get less far left, then it, it tends to go up. And then if you get the to, right stays winning on energy politics, what can you say? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but Sinn Sinn Féin actually had a very high percentage. So there were 55%, I think, of Sinn Féin members said that they would be be interested in in nuclear power. And I think, you know, some of that, like I'm not, I I think part of it is the the understanding of the membership of Sinn Féin, often working class people, that there there are costs and consequences to Mm -hmm. this. And the Green Party, of course, massively anti-nuclear yes. in Ireland. As uh, ever. They would be much more middle class. They can kind of, they can afford to pay the, the heating bills and, and whatever. And, you know, and, and just chalk it up to an expense that has to be paid for climate change. Yeah, so, it's a luxury belief, right? They're willing to tithe right. to that's, Gaia. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> Whereas the, the Sinn Féin has remained accountable to some measure to its working class constituency. Right. So if they, if they, as we like to say over here, fuck up the bag, they'll have to pay for it. So that, so it's heartening to hear that Sinn Féin has 55% is higher than I would have imagined. Right. Hello. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No, that's fine. And so I was going over some explainers and stuff published by various Irish publications about like, okay, like we might be having some blackouts coming in. Who's in power now? Are they worried about it? Are they coming up with national strategies for it? Are they looking towards the UK at all to see how they should respond or what's the dynamic? Well, I think that, uh, you know, as usual in Irish politics, right now, there's not a, there's not a firm government. Sinn Féin's by far the most popular party, but not the most powerful in Parliament. So mm-hmm. they, they have far fewer seats. It's a Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil party control, and they, they basically have an agreement to keep the, the government going for the time being. Neither of them, they're just, they're so neoliberalized, they, they don't have any aim to do anything and nuclear would be way beyond something that they would attempt to, to try to push through. The, you would just require some kind of state involvement in a way that they're unwilling to, to, to become involved. So they would like to kick right. the can down the road. They don't want to deal with the problem at all. They want to go ahead with, you know, I mean, data centers have become a central issue. So people are talking about data centers being built in Ireland. So mm-hmm. Ireland... At the moment, its economy, it's an extremely open economy in the sense that almost everything is imported and almost everything that's produced is exported. So it's something like on the order of 90% imports and 90% exports. So one of the most open economies in Europe, which means, and it, it really bases its model around tax efficiency. Uh, so, mm. you know, tax evasion for US companies, allowing US companies that do business in Europe to not pay taxes in the United States. This was the big scandal with Apple, right? That's right. But it's not just Apple. It's it's a sure. lot of different major tech companies are using it as a base of operations to basically tra- value transfers. They pretend that things are being produced, that IP is being produced in Ireland, and then basically uh, evade taxes. So they 
but they also now want to start because they they have Ireland as their headquarters. They want to like build data centers there in order to continue their operations. They don't have to do it in Europe. It's maybe more efficient for them, uh, mm-hmm. but they they will need power for that. And so Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, they're of course very interested in this open model. So they they do want to facilitate that. And so there will be a need for power. And I think mostly they're just hoping that they can just keep the, you know, the, the interconnects to the UK going and the UK will sort it out somehow, you know? And I think that's really the way that they're thinking about it. Yeah, that's going to be interesting as Brexit starts to become clearer in terms of what, I mean, um, I know that on both sides of the border in Ireland, everybody is looking to see exactly how Brexit's going to shake out and that will have its own, I don't know if it will rise to the level of tumult, but it'll have certainly very real consequences down to energy politics for Ireland. Absolutely. It's really hard to see how exactly it works out, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I expect eventually you know, the, the border of Ireland will really be in the Irish Sea. And then the economically, it'll be one unit, even before it's a political unit mm-hmm. uh, for tax purposes and for tariffs and et cetera. I think that's probably the direction it will go. It's hard to guess though. Yeah. It's not clear. Well, yeah, I don't, I think the last couple of years have made us all far humbler, I would hope, in our ability to predict what may or may not happen. And I think this this winter, even if there have been many people for the past, oh, five, 10 years pointing out that there are serious grid problems endemic to the RTO structure, the auction house structure, it's going to feel like a black swan event, even if it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ireland is, I mean, the, the, the setup here, we have a very large amount of wind power and the, the wind wind is just not very reliable. It depends like a lot by year and you have long lulls. So the you know there've been analyses that we're using the Irish weather data to try to determine like how long the lulls are. And yearly we'll have a three-day lull. So and a three-day lull is quite significant. And then every yeah, it's like having years, a it's like having a car where the brakes only work ninety percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Three days, that's a big chunk of it. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of power, and you can't store that much power. And I talk to people about this quite a lot, and you'd be surprised at how unaware people are. Of, oh, they're like, oh, it's only three days. Well, you know, you want to go three days without heating or three days without lights or, you know, the hospital shut down for three days, you know, total chaos. Suddenly everything doesn't work for three days. You'd have a lot of people die and it wouldn't be pretty, you know, no, and you can't store that much power. It's just not possible to, to have three days worth. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, 60 hertz is 60 hertz. Or I guess, I don't know, you guys might be at 50. Um, it's, yes, I think it's 50. 50 or 55 i can't remember yes it's i think it's it's sub 64 ireland the uk and the rest of europe but that has to hum all the time it has to be balanced you know in order for it to work modernity is a ceaseless project of maintenance you know that is both its boon and its burden and i think people have really forgotten that here's a question that i wanted to ask you i just thought of it when you brought up wind in the U.S., there is a lot of, I doubt Raymond Williams would be surprised that there is a lot of conflict between the town and the country 
over land use for wind in that the people who want it, who generally live in cities, don't have to live anywhere near it or deal with the land use consequences. Is there anything like that bearing out in Ireland? 100%. 100%. So you see like the, the in the countryside, there were big protests against wind installations because they're noisy or they, they would create whirring sounds they would mm-hmm. have and the flicker towers next to people and it it did yeah no there's it's much more popular with people in the city they don't even have to see them you know they, mm-hmm. they're just somewhere over there so it's very sort of not in my backyard type approach they mm-hmm. don't care about the i mean most urbanites just don't care about the land use uh, implications of wind power or and many of people are just unaware of it you know so, yeah, they don't they don't necessarily understand it. They don't understand that you need transmission for it as well. Has Ireland started uh, messing around with offshore at all? Is that something that there? Yeah, no, there are offshore developments that are happening because yeah, those and... are a nightmare to maintain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's I mean, Denmark has really popularized it, and so they've you know they've been selling on their sort of uh, projects all over the place, and there are big development projects to do offshore wind. Right, uh, in right. The UK and Ireland. Well, uh, so how does this work out in terms of like we've talked about what the major parties are? Obviously, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ha- are basically like zombie parties that ba- have path dependency to power. Right, the energy seems to be more with Sinn Fein. I can't remember her name, but they have a very charismatic and effective communicator out at the front of that party right now. And how does this? You mentioned that people who vote Sinn Féin have now a majority who would support nuclear, but how does it work out like in a partisan way? Because in the U.S. it's very, very specific in terms of how energy politics shakes out, right? So how does it shake out along partisan lines in Ireland? Well, it's a little hard to tell. I mean, it's not it's not very explicit. So Sinn Féin are very um, cagey about most of the things that are not core policy aspects. So they won't t- they haven't talked about nuclear power outwardly at all. Nor like no no party in Ireland has a policy of promoting nuclear power at the moment, uh, and there wouldn't be anyone who who you would say is like a prominent member of any of the parties that's promoting nuclear power. The Workers' Party do not have a position against or for nuclear power. I suspect in the next, um, in, in the next period, we will have a, a policy for nuclear power, but mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's up to the, the party Congress. Sure. So, that, that's, so it, there's, no, there's no real clear, I mean, the partisan breakdown is more along like, if you go to people before profit, which uh, they, they would be very anti-nuclear and the Green Party, very anti-nuclear, verging into Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who don't really care that much. And then, you know, Labour is a little bit more pro-nuclear, the Social Democrats a little bit more pro-nuclear, and then Sinn Féin being, being one of the more... But it, there's, it, it's not really talked about. And, and in fact, energy policy in Ireland, there's not a clear conception of, of what's possible or what's not possible. It's just sort of widely accepted that, that wind is enough, that all we have to do is build more wind and that'll sort us out. And in Ireland, it's particularly irritating because we are very flat. There isn't a lot of uh, hydro, you know, there's not a like big hydro dam you could imagine back pumping water into or, or anything like that. So it really means that, you know, we're gonna be verging towards 
40% to 45% of the grid being wind and then having LNG supply, you know, the difference and coal and LNG. 40 is wild, right? That is, so I don't know, some listeners might know, some might not. In the US, the danger zone seems to start to be when you're approaching 20% wind like that's when brownouts start happening that's when it starts to get like you start to have a sort of like nudging towards energy austerity i live in california that's what's happening here so 40 would be very very difficult you know a mutual friend of ours angela nagel loves to tell the story about a tech conference that was going to be put on in ireland and then they had to call it off because Ireland hadn't actually made state infrastructure investments in like like any like Wi-Fi or anything like that and literally could not materially support that conference, right? It would have just been too much for it to handle if there are blackouts because energy is the secret ingredient in it. everything. That type of prosperity is going to be harder and harder to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's probably going to have to hit before people fully recognize, you know, the difficulty. I think, you know, the there's quite a number of people who use natural gas for their boilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this winter is going to be a bit of a wake-up call. I think the prices are going to cause people to start edging towards, oh, there's got to be a solution to this. And when yeah. we start looking in that direction... I do think that uh, nuclear is going to come on the agenda in, in Ireland as well. You can see that it's really coming on the agenda in places that I hadn't even expected, like Germany. So mm-hmm. Germans are now just verging over 50% interested in not shutting down nuclear power plants. Now, that's not building nuclear power plants, but that's a huge difference from a few years back. Yeah, know? compared to what they're doing, especially because one of their biggest and best plants is set to switch off a month and a half from today. So let's hope uh, they do that because they also, I checked the news before I hopped on with you, and they aren't giving permit approval to Nord Stream 2. So I have no idea what they're planning on doing this winter. Um, <laughs> just gonna... They have a yeah, lot of coal, you know, I mean, and, and that, that goes Burn deep. furniture, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the smell of lacquer in the morning. So Ireland has a nuke ban. It got put in place in 1999. So that's obviously an obstacle getting politicians to try to overturn something like that is always a risky thing to do. It's a thankless task. There has to be the right motivations. I think one thing that gives me hope is that Irish politics, because of the bifurcation between it and the North and its relationship to the UK, is that much of the politics, especially for people on the Sinn Féin, and I imagine in the Workers' Party too, is still in the idiom of sovereignty which is a good thing to have in your back pocket when you want to be able to start articulating energy concerns to your constituency. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, those two, like the the Workers' Party um, and Sinn Féin, outside of that, I don't think that uh, sovereignty is really considered to be an issue for most Irish political parties. There has been a general turn towards a very sort of cosmopolitan, Atlanticist viewpoint, Mm -hmm. And that means sort of like facilitating American companies rather than having a directed energy policy or economic policy of any type outside of facilitating foreign investment and, and, and foreign tax evasion. So that's 
but but Sinn Féin still would have a sense of wanting to go towards a united Ireland, and that brings with it some capacity perhaps to articulate it. And certainly in the Workers' Party, we would be interested in, in sovereignty. The sovereign, the Ireland does have uh, uranium resources. Some people have applied for, uh, for permits to mine it in Donegal, it, they've been denied oh, permits. Oh, Donegal, really? Okay. Yeah, so they, they've been denied permits to mine it. But there's also, I know there's uranium elsewhere uh, because I've seen it in, in the in the rocks, but I, I'm not sure how much there is. But the, Carlo certainly has some in, in other places in the south. I'm, I'm not sure it's been investigated, but there have been mining investigations in, in Donegal that, that found that there was probably sufficient amounts to sustain a mining operation. Wow. So that would also improve the capacity for sovereignty if you if you actually had your own energy resources to work with. I, I was about to say, that's, that's incredibly lucky. It's also mining has changed a lot. So in situ mining is far less taxing on the environment and for the people that work there. And speaking of work, I'm very interested in where labor in terms of not the party, but workers fit into, if at all, energy discussions in Ireland? I've never heard anybody talk about <laughs> workers in that, in that context at all. It's, it's kind of incredible, actually. I mean, I was, so I, I wrote a document, a discussion document on nuclear to try to promote the idea. And in one of the aspects of it is that it tends to be unionized jobs, even in places that have fairly low union density, because everybody wants the workers to be you know, carefully dealing with this kind of thing. So it's good mm-hmm. for it to be a union shop. And they tend to have good, you know, good conditions. It tends to be that you have a relatively high labor content for uh, the mm-hmm. cost. So if you have a coal or, or an oil plant, a lot of the costs of running the plant are are the fuel costs, but in nuclear, that tends to be, it tends to be more organic, higher organic composition capital, which is probably good, good for workers. So that's, that's, uh, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't come up actually. People just don't think about like, how do the workers get on with these various technologies? So that's fascinating. And I, I mean, the dependence on LNG, I think just in terms of like importing, cause it's not like you guys aren't Texas. You know, you're not throwing up well pads left and right, and I don't think you could. You know, I think when a lot of people uh, have to return to the peat bog this winter <laughs> <laughs> to keep things going, they might, they might, there might be some real come to Jesus moments on the horizon here. But I don't want that for anybody. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I'm afraid that that's that's going to be the way of it. It's probably going to have to be a hard crunch before people recognize what the consequences of dependence on on natural gas are. Mm-hmm. You're seeing it happen all over Europe. I think this winter is going to be a. I, I think it will uh, impinge on people's consciousness. Finally, I mean, the fact that it is going to in the U.S., where we have proportionally a high amount of domestic productive capabilities for fossil, and a previous guest Isaac Orr, who's out in Minnesota recently put out a piece taking a look at the XL, the utility, their coal holdings for this winter, and they're vastly depleted. And being from Alaska, you know, the Minnesota and the Alaska winter probably aren't too, too different in terms of just sheer brutality of experience, you know, (laughs) and that's a dangerous place to be. 
especially for local utility. And everywhere in the world, even Ireland, is power hungry. If Ireland wants these data centers put up, they're going to need more terawatts and they're going to need reliable terawatts. And Ireland's, I'm looking at my map now, not that big. So it does not have the ability to host both an enormous renewables build out. I mean, first of all, solar would just be a joke. And <laughs> and batteries aren't yeah. going to happen either because that would be hugely capital intensive, especially in, in land. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of did it back of the napkin calculation of how many batteries we would need and what the kind of space utilization would be. Basically, all of Dublin between between the canals would be batteries. That's how big an installation you would need to actually serve for the, the five-day lull that we would need in every few years, you know? And that's that's just not... Did you do any... What's the price tag on that? Do, do you know? It's, or It's, you know, it's actually be in my discussion document. I put it in some kind of number, but it, it doesn't even make sense because the, <laughs> the, 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 the volumes you would need are so large that they exceed the entire market by several multiples. So it's not... Uh, it's not a yeah. thing you could even calculate. I don't know what it would do to any of the material prices along the supply chain. It's, right. it's a nonsense number. And it would be vast, just right. vast. You and know? We're, we're talking about a small country that doesn't have necessarily a manufacturing base, right? Um, That's so right. Very and, low industrialization, relatively low energy requirements, electricity per person, given that we're so far north. Uh, yeah, know, sure. But, but even given that, you know, it's not feasible for Ireland alone. Yeah. That is that is wild. So let me let me ask you this. A lot of this stuff, we've been, we've been basically having a very strange and bleak conversation this whole time. I'm not going to lie to you, my friend. What's given you hope these days? Well, I I think that you know there's there's always a dialectic in these things. So you <laughs> you, you have this negativity around dialectic. Uh, what are you in the workers' party or something? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there's a negativity from the crunch around natural gas, mm-hmm. but it's also going to drive the uh, some kind of activity. And I think that activity can be quite beneficial. I think it's going to change political perceptions throughout Europe. And I think in Ireland as well. And I I think that there's some capacity to start promoting a a nuclear future. And I think for Ireland, nuclear really would serve as, you know, something that we could could potentially do. So if you look at other small countries in Europe that are approximately our size, so Slovakia, they are going to have over 50% of their power supplied by nuclear power, and they're going to be a net exporter. And I think we could get to that kind of situation, similarly to the way that they did. You know, it wouldn't take very much to get to half of, of power from nuclear. You just build, so Belarus just built a, a mm-hmm. nuclear installation with two Viver uh, 1200s. If we did the, the same Is thing. Is that the Lenin we, 1 and 2? Is that what they were called? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> so we could do that, you know, and and we'd be at about fifty percent from from two beavers. Wow. Uh, so, wow, that is astounding. I mean, yeah, I hope that the tide starts to turn, and I hope uh, this is my offer. I don't know whether um, it's meaningful or not, but if there is anything that I can do on my end to help either with your arguments within the workers' party itself about nuclear or just more generally, I am at your disposal because this is a hugely important issue. That's a fantastic offer, you know, and I will be sending your materials around to people. uh, And I think it is, 
you know, it's really great to have people who are advocating on behalf of nuclear power as a as a measure for for power policy because it's, it is really with all of the things that we're facing, you know, with the difficulties of extracting fossil fuels, the the increasingly power hungry society that we have, especially we're going to have to raise another four billion people out of out of poverty and yep. development. That's going to require vast uh, amounts of power, and we can provide that, and we can provide it in a reasonable way that is sustainable. If if we we really look at <laughs> nuclear as a as a potential source of energy, right? That's absolutely true. I mean, there is. I, I was saying this the other day on my friend Chris Kiefer's podcast. I was like, there's no non if if you're like very worried about climate change, there is no non-industrial solution to climate change, which means that it is going to require a lot more energy than we already have to prepare for and to master, because it is possible to master climate. In fact, that's what we've been doing this whole time. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, I mean, Ireland's another good example. Like you can't, we have a very difficult heating situation in Ireland. So we have poorly insulated homes and there's a lot of heat that's used. All of it, almost all of it comes from carbon, carbon dioxide emitting sources. And we either have to electrify or come up with district heating solutions or something along those lines. There's a vast amount of displacement that has to take place and there's not any talk really about how, how we're going to do that. And people are like, oh, we'll, we'll increase the, you know, the amount of power on the grid using wind power a little bit. But you're talking about you have to double the size of the grid, like the, the amount of power that's being produced in order to deal with all of these heating source issues as well. You know? So it's a, it's a big problem if we don't try to find technological solutions to it, because the, there is a non-technical solution, which is that you know we all die off in a Malthusian disaster. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that is a solution yeah. of some sort. Well, and it wouldn't be the first time somebody's proposed that for how to handle. It. But I think you know something that gives me hope as well is seeing the nuclear-centered district heating that's happening in Siberia and I think in one province in China that shows that it is very, very possible there to resolve that problem through nuclear. I think Ireland has some distinct advantages. I didn't know about the domestic uranium reserves, however big those are. Not that it really matters, like it's dense enough that um, you know you Don't can get by for a while. <laughs> and if you could build a fast breeder at some point or get one built, uh, that would be even better. You could run a lot of that back. But the other thing is that, you know, I think that because it doesn't have a big industrial base, that it will frankly need less. And so it might be easier to achieve, right? Like if it were the case that it were heavily industrialized in the state that it is right now, I think there would be like a lot more coal or something on your grid or something like that. And there'd be entrenched interests that would be harder to fight against. But Vulnerable LNG imports, I think, can make a pretty easy villain after an energy crisis. After a bad, yeah, exactly. Yeah. After a bad winter. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the good thing about it is that it's imported, so it's no one's like real fault domestically. Right? <laughs> Hi, how are you? Well, I can see that you are a busy man. So um, I'm going to go ahead and end it here. Thank you so much for coming on. Give us a place where anyone can... Okay, so, yeah, so I'm Gavin.Mendel.Gleason at gmail.com 
or you can write to at the Workers' Party if you're interested. And on the Workers' Party website, there's the discussion document on nuclear power, and I can send that on to you so you can give it to your readers if they're yeah, interested. Yeah, go ahead and put it. send it over to me, and I can put all that in the show notes uh, so Great. that people know how to do that. All right. So, everyone, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant.